Don't worry, folks. It's all part of the show. It's all part of the show. This week, we're going to watch a film about a guy who straps a rocket to his back, and there's no worry about how he really steers it, except that, like, you do something with your head, and then there's no worry about, like, the flames coming out of your back, except he wears some, like, badass boots. But don't worry about that shit, because when I was a kid, this shit was what made me want to fly. This in Top Gun, we're talking the motherfucking Rocketeer. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who watched Tottenham win 2 0 over Newcastle over the weekend and didn't notice any other news at all. Uh, nothing else <laughs> happened, did Austin? <laughs> Uh, I'm Austin Hayden Smith, philosopher, actor, producer, writer, etc. And um, you missed a lot, brother. Some Did shit I? Went down. Yeah, yeah. Um, shit went down. Some shit went. Was down, it good brother. or bad? Uh, depends on what side you're on. As as as, <laughs> as an Aryan, I'm obviously very keen on anything that has to do with the master race and uh, yeah, you know, know you know white people being on top. So uh, was it was it was it good for people like me? Uh, it was good for people that would that would define themselves that way, uh, I think, but also bad because a lot of them got punched in the head. So, yeah, no, it was bad. It, it was bad. It was a it was a week of some sit some some shit. And I'm not always the kind of person that wants to be like, hey, let's ignore like bad things and like just bury our heads in the sand. But sometimes when things are really shitty, it's also good to kind of recognize the good things in life. And that's why sometimes the power of film is a good thing to. Uh, delve into is, is, is a good point to just watch some indiana jones and just watch a man punch some nazis that's right or or the rocketeer <laughs> tie-in it's all connected okay in reviews this week we're talking about atomic blonde in our main topic we are diving into the relevancy of rotten tomatoes and finally we'll be discussing joe johnson's 1991 film the rocketeer <laughs> Okay, Austin, so we've only got one review this week, um, cool. and in honor of The Rocketeer, I've decided that it's going to be graded on how far it would fly um, <laughs> on a trip from L.A. to New York. Like, like okay. how far across the states would it get? Okay, I like it. So, okay, so Atomic Blonde, uh, which is from the director, well, kind of the co-director, but uncredited co-director of, uh, of John Wick, uh, a guy called David Leake who, um, yeah, basically I think he did kind oh, of... Wait, real quick, why is he the uncredited co-director? Well, essentially him and the credited director, they are they were like second unit guys who are really, really famous kind of action and stunt guys. Uh, they've worked with the Wachowski brothers, um, and basically that's how... You mean the Wachowski sisters now? Sorry, actually, that's a very good point. Uh, sorry, the Wachowski sisters, the Wachowski siblings, whatever you want to call them. But yes, I think when they worked with them, they were still the Wachowski brothers. But obviously, okay. things. So they changed. did like the did they did like the Matrix and shit. Yeah, no, I think they were involved. Well, they knew Keanu Reeves. That's how they got Keanu Reeves and John oh, Wick. Makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but basically, yeah. So uh, he essentially helped co-direct it, but because the DGA, Directors Guild of America, has some very specific rules in terms of how you define directing teams. They have to be registered under a directing team name. And, you know, there's been various things that have come up with this um, in the past in terms of, like, where credit goes and how you dictate these things. But anyway, the point was that he is kind of the uncredited 
co-director of the first oh. John Wick. And he left uh, to do Atomic Blonde. Whereas the other uh, director, Chad Stalinsky, uh, he uh, went on to direct John Wick Part 2. Oh, okay. So, you know, and, you know, and David Leaked is going to be also directing the Deadpool sequel. So, yeah, I mean, oh, okay. good things are happening. Um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say my feeling with John Wick is that it is a great movie aesthetically with some really awesome action and has a kind of weird concept that I kind of like of the Brotherhood of Assassins. But they're both movies I've watched once. I enjoyed them the one time. I've never really had much of an interest in going back. And um, in so many ways, Atomic Blonde, which is where Charlize Theron plays a British agent who is sent to Berlin the week that the Berlin Wall is coming down and has to find out some information about a agent who was killed that in some way involves the agent who's already there, played by James McAvoy, and some shit happens, and it's fucking confusing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, but it's got sort of these eye candy visuals, which are like almost like my dreams. It's like, Mm. it's it's funny, because I remember like first five minutes are just so aesthetically cool that Alex just kind of looked at me and went like, oh my God, I want like a, I want like a screen grab of all of this. And, right. and I was kind of like, I, literally the first five minutes, I was like, oh my God, could this be like one of my like top 10 movies of the year? Cause I'm just like so into this. And mm. I think the, the, the visuals of it, and here, here's the interesting thing is, um, because it, it, it's playing with a lot of things that I quite like myself, which is the sort of really intense color lighting, you know, with sort of two big colors and it's got a kind of neon look to it and the sort of mm. modern spin on the noir, but kind of with a sort of new wave look and soundtrack to it. And so okay. I'm, I'm, I'm totally into the visual look of it, but it takes me till about 40 minutes in before I suddenly have this realization of, I have no fucking clue what is going on in this movie. (laughs) Like, the plot is bafflingly nonsensical. And I I actually think it's... I mean, it was interesting because I heard... I think it was Robbie Collins was was talking about it in comparison to uh, Mission Impossible, Brian De Palmer's Mission Impossible, which is a very (laughs) convoluted movie. But the convoluted elements of it are so well told that even though during parts of the film you feel lost, it all kind of comes circling back on each other. And at the end, it all kind of fits together in this sort of great puzzle fashion, which is why Brian De Palmer is a fucking Mac Daddy as a filmmaker. But this just gets more and more nonsensical as it goes on. And it literally feels like... It feels like they're in a weird kind of area because on one hand, you kind of feel like they don't just want to make a dumb action movie. They actually want to make something that's kind of smart and cool and, you know, isn't just about, say, making, I don't know, like a a knockoff Dolph Lundgren, you know, uh, somebody goes kick some ass sort of thing. They want this to be smarter than that. But I don't think they have the narrative chops to be able to pull it off. So it does just become gibberish. And Mm. I mean... I love Charlize Theron. I've said before, I think she's a great actress. And, you know, young adult, oh, yeah. I think she's wonderful. Um, her, I don't know if you ever saw her on Arrested Development. Um, no. About 10 years ago, she played a British character, which I think has to go down in history as one of the worst English accents ever anyone has ever done. It's up there with Dick Van Dyke as one of the worst English accents <laughs> ever. It's just okay. so unconvincing. You couldn't imagine how anybody could sit there and listen to it and be like, um... Maybe you need a, like an accent coach or something, but right. I and I will say, 
in the, what, 10 years or so since that happened, she hasn't really improved. It's like, it's, mm. it's maybe not quite as awful as it was, but it's still fucking terrible. Um, mm. And she doesn't speak a lot. And that's actually the thing that I think is actually kind of disappointing is that I found her performance very surprisingly dull. And I don't know mm. what it is, but Keanu can kind of pull off this kind of vacant thing and he's wooden, but he's still got a kind of charisma within that. And I don't mm-hmm. quite, I've never quite understood how to explain how Keanu Reeves works as an actor, because I know, <laughs> I know, you know, in terms of like, you know, it's like the mechanics of it. He's not a great actor, but there is something about him that kind of works. And I don't know mm. what that is. Charlize Theron is a great actress, but for some reason, she can't do as good a job in this as Keanu Reeves can. And I, I can't explain that. Uh-huh. But she, I found her very dull, and it was really disappointing Weird. to me. Um, and James McAvoy, I was kind of hoping for uh, James McAvoy in filth, off the chain kind of thing. And I think the trailers implied that he was going to be, like, really, like, hamming it up and going crazy. And I actually found him surprisingly muted. And, you know, I, I, I generally, I'm always happy to have James McAvoy there. But I just... Yeah was kind of hoping for more and you got like a very talented cast john goodman is playing sort of thankless guy you know you know sort of cia head role who you know again mm. john goodman's one of those guys who you know it's what you call a 27 percenter you know just automatically makes the movie better by being in it but <laughs> you know i i'm i found this surprisingly dull interesting but i will say there is a what well, I think like a ten minute action sequence in it, which everyone is talking about. Which um, I almost kind of feel like you don't really need to watch the movie to see. You can just kind of like at some point just get the movie and watch the ten minute action sequence, which is just spectacular. And it's just mm. like this long shot. It's, you know, it's obviously it's made to look like one shot. It's obviously pieced together through several different ones, but it's like. It is basically Charlie's there and like piece by piece, like fighting all of these guys in a stairway in um, in a in a sort of building in East Berlin. And she and the thing that I love about it, and I've said this before, is I love when people are fighting and they get their shit kicked out of them while they're doing it. So mm-hmm. like she is getting their shit kicked out of her while she's also like beating up all of these guys as well. And that's kind of like it's it's great. And it, in itself as a set piece, it's brilliant. And for that, like, 10 or 15 minutes, the movie just totally came alive for me. But it's like, man, especially the ending, too, which just kind of, it just it just further feeds into the complete gibberish of everything that the movie became. I mean, I, I don't know, have you ever seen, did you ever watch Community? Yeah, yeah. Do you, do, you, do you remember the conspiracy theory episode of Community, where, like, they everyone keeps double-crossing each other? God, I vaguely do. Was that in one of the first three seasons? Yeah, it was in season three, I think. Yeah, it sounds so familiar. But it's like they have a scene in there where it just literally like everybody kind of goes like, I was working with him the whole time. Oh, really? Well, what you didn't realize was I was actually working with him the whole time. But (laughs) what you didn't realize is I knew you would do that. So I was actually working with him the whole time, you know, and it's kind of like that point where like at the end of it, the principal kind of goes like, uh, he's like, just everyone stop fucking double crossing each other. It just at a certain (laughs) point, it just becomes gibberish. And that's yeah. kind of what this movie becomes, is you so lose the thread of anything of what is going on in it. It's just insane. But at the same time, I, I, it's hard for me to say, don't go see it, because I don't think it's very well made in terms of story. But I think 
the aesthetic coolness of it again it almost elevates aesthetic coolness almost to uh to an art form i mean it, it, you know in similar way to say something like top gun and i mean it has you'll you'll love this um it has a bit where she crosses over into east berlin and she goes to this really famous cinema in east berlin and um where she's trying to lose these guys who are tailing her and she ends up having a fight behind the cinema screen and you know what they're showing on the cinema screen what stalker oh no shit <laughs> so you, fi- you finally got me to kind of wa- uh... to kind of watch stalker <laughs> i watched yeah, a yeah, clip of it on in in this movie what scene was it uh <laughs> it was raining people were sitting in the rain because obviously that looked yeah. kind of cool as a backlit sort of thing oh uh, yeah 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 okay um so i'm kind of like i feel really mixed i'm kind of like um mm. if you like really cool looking shit and beautiful imagery and you know a brief lesbian sex scene and charlie's theron in a bathtub filled with naked in a bathtub filled with ice and lots of ass kicking then you know i I feel like i'm selling it really well there but it's kind of like you have to get through a lot of nonsensical boring gibberish to get there right i I will say i kind of want to buy the soundtrack because the soundtrack's amazing all right so what uh what do you rate this bad boy uh, in a a cross-country flight it's it's hard man because i kind of feel like it starts off really strong you know and so it was like chugging along to new york at really good speed and then it just kind of like <laughs> i don't know it ran out of fuel or it lost an engine or something and then it just had to land in like des moines or something like that you know <laughs> i feel like that's that's where we're at with it yeah so yeah. it's it's kind of like yeah was it like a sully where it took off and then it ran into a flock of pigeons or some shit like that and the engine went out so it had to land in the hudson and didn't quite make it to jfk no i mean i feel like that's way further than it got i don't think i don't (laughs) think it got all the way to the hudson i think you know i think definitely it's i don't think it got further than um the midwest oh oh, i mean it's coming from la okay yeah okay yeah 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 so yeah that's our one review this week guys Okay, so this week we are looking at a video by Screen Junkies, which is a dissection of the website Rotten Tomatoes and how it factors into the modern film landscape uh, in terms of criticism, in terms of box office, in terms of studio. Now, I kind of shit on Screen Junkies a couple of weeks ago for an awful top 10 on the Western. You know what? I was a top seven, and I stand by that because I'm I'm sorry. Putting the hateful eight in a top seven of Westerns is one of the stupidest things I could possibly imagine anyone who expects themselves taken seriously to do. However, I kind of feel bad because they're not all bad. And I will say, incidentally, if you want a great top 10, go check out Cinefix's top 10 of the Western because Cinefix is kind of a better channel. So Yeah, I mean, yeah, check out any of the really videos. Good. Yeah, yeah. Just, just go check All out Cinefix. This is Cinefix. free endorsement. If anyone exactly. from Cinefix is listening, we like your shit, um, you know, feel free to, feel, we'll, we'll, we'll get involved. We'll do shit with but, Cinefix. Yeah, feel free to give us a shout out on your channel. You know, top 10 best film podcasts. Exactly. We wouldn't mind, you know. Yeah. No, even, no, no. even if you have to doctor it a little bit, you know, just to kind of grease the wheels, just to get us in there because we're smooth on you. You can be sweet on us. And even also, if anyone from Wisecrack is listening, Austin still also loves Wisecrack, obviously. Yeah, well, you know, they pay me, so I love them because they pay me. <laughs> so go check out Wisecrack first. <laughs> 
Um, but okay, so incidentally, Screen Junkies did do a video that I liked, which, as I said, was the dissection of Rotten Tomatoes. And we brought this up a couple of times in the the flawed thinking in terms of how people respond to Rotten Tomatoes and how they understand the concept of what Rotten Tomatoes is. Now, right. what Rotten Tomatoes is, is, if you don't know, is it's a website. It's a review aggregator. So it essentially takes all the reviews um, from all the sort of mainstream publications. Uh, you know, I think when it's a top film, you have usually around something like 200, 250. And it uh, accumulates them all and then gives the film a score uh, out of 100, you know, and which decides whether it's rotten or fresh. Now, each reviewer has to assign whether they think the film is rotten or fresh, and that's up to their their um their choice of whether they want to say that the film is rotten or fresh. Um right. and I think it calls into question several problems within that system because when you have such a polarized rating system, it kind of doesn't take much account of nuance. And so for instance, if you look at say something like Wonder Woman, and I think we brought this up with Wonder Woman, I think we brought this up with Get Out and a couple of other films, where they're Films that you're kind of like, I want to be supportive of this, even if I have certain problems with some of the ways, with some of the things being said, um, or some of the flawed filmmaking elements of it, I'm going to come down on the side of giving it the benefit of the doubt. Mm. So I think it's how you end up with things like Get Out or um, Wonder Woman being in the 90th percentile, largely because people want to say, I'm giving this the benefit of the doubt, whereas something... A film of a similar quality that didn't have that kind of same uh, willingness to want to kind of like give it the benefit of the doubt, you could see slipping in terms of how much it gets. And of course, it also, the thing that I thought was interesting about the video is it it says, hey, okay, so you got like, okay, so you got like Moonlight at like 98%. You got like, uh, and then you've got like Captain America Civil War at like 90% or something like that. You know, it's like, are we saying these are equivocal films because they both scored in the 90th percentile? No. Right. You know, it's like it's it's a very polarizing and simplistic concept as to how to grade a film. And um, but it also has started to have huge real world implications with, you know, it actually factoring into box office and sales a lot with people actually deciding whether they want to go see films purely based on the score without actually reading reviews. So, um, I mean, kind of like Austin, what's your, what's your thoughts on Rotten Tomatoes? Do you, do you watch, do you look at Rotten Tomatoes? You know, I do look at Rotten Tomatoes probably more than I ought to, even though I acknowledge every single thing that you just said. And that is a criticism that we have made on this podcast previously. So I acknowledge that, but nevertheless, for some reason, whenever I Google a film and I look on the right hand side and it's got like, you know, the 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 little thumbnail of the film it's got like it's rotten tomato score and then like it's imdb score or whatever it's it is got a metacritic score as well metacritic, metacritic score, score yeah. is often more nuanced but i always yep. kind of wonder with the metacritic score if if it's just because rotten tomatoes is such a sort of more catchy marketable thing that that's why that caught on more than metacritic did well yeah because i think with metacritic what ends up happening is most of the films that are in like even like the 90th percentile let's say usually they're in like the 7 to 8s in metacritic right and so many of the films are like 7.3 or 7.6 mm. or 7.5 and at that point that's not as sexy of a sell as you saying ah it's an 89 or it's a 94 you know so i feel like you're going to you're going to go to the sexier score which rotten tomatoes has been able to capitalize on 
on articulating these scores that are a little bit more sexy, either in in bolstering the product as being good or as in shitting on the product, right? Like, oh, it's only got a 22 in Rotten Tomatoes. It must be shit. Well, but maybe the Metacritic score is like a four and a half, which is totally different than a, a certified not fresh because maybe you can enjoy a four and a half or maybe if it's a five and a half, you know, but for some reason it doesn't have certified fresh. So, yeah, I think there are some problems with, with the rating system altogether. But nevertheless, I still fall into the trap of relying on it a lot. Well, I think the interesting thing is, and this is something I've heard critics talk about a lot, is that, okay, so take something like Atomic Blonde, okay? That is a film that, you know, where I'm like, hey, it's got this fantastic action sequence in it, and it looks really fucking cool. And so there's an element to which I'm, I'm not saying to people, this is a bad movie. But at the same time, I'm not right. really saying I think it's a good movie. So it's very hard for me to sit and try and say to you, this is rotten, this is fresh. And that's essentially every review that a film critic posts that gets uh, submitted and put onto Rotten Tomatoes ends up they end up having to decide this is rotten this is fresh and it's very easy to fall on either side of that if it's a movie that's kind of mediocre so it's interesting to me because one of the things that they cited on in the video was they showed how uh box art has started to have certified fresh with rotten tomatoes on it um Mm. and you know one of the films they had up there was ghostbusters and i seriously challenge you to try and meet someone who thinks that is a good movie. Like, you know, I'm, I met plenty of people who think it's like, it's fine. I've never met anyone who enthusiastically was like, that was fucking great. When all the smoke cleared about the kind of like, yeah, fuck you for being against an all female ghostbusters and everything. And I was, I was the same way. I went to see ghostbusters and I was like, I will, I willed it to be good. I wanted it to be good, but I just had mm. to face up to the fact after I'd seen it, that that was just not a very good movie. And my feeling is, so I think it's got something like a 75% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's bullshit because I think most of those people, I think there's a very large percentage of those reviewers who are kind of like, you know, it's mediocre, but I'll give it a fresh rating because I'm, right. I, I want it to be good. And that's, yeah. and, and so, you know, so especially too, if you see certified fresh on a box, I mean, it's like you don't have any idea that a large part of those reviews might have been like, yeah, it's mediocre and it's flawed. Yeah. It just says, exactly. hey, it's certified fresh. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's one of the – so just from the perspective of writing a review, from the critic's perspective, you know, each individual critic is going to be different. Someone like myself who isn't as harsh of a critic it could give a film that in my book would be like a 5 out of 10. I could be like, yeah, it wasn't that great of a movie, but you know what? It's still worth seeing. Therefore, mm. I would give it a fresh. Whereas someone like you might be a little bit more harsh and you'd be like, hey, if, if it's not like a seven or if there weren't something really interesting that we're redeeming about this film, I'm sorry, I'm not, I can't give it a fresh, you know? Um, so, so, and then not only that, but it might also be different. You might say, I'm going to give Wonder Woman a fresh because I think it's attempt at tackling a feminine superhero or something along those lines was val- uh, was, was valuable. Um, whereas, you know, maybe another film that you would maybe give them both six and a half out of 10 or sevens out of 10, maybe the other one wouldn't have that X factor to tip it over to the fresh. So again, even that is kind of, it's a very difficult rating system to fully rely on. And, um, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but there's a concept called reification in political philosophy that comes from like certain Marxian circles. And it's this idea that 
um, in culture, you know, we, we develop these uh, systems. And when we develop these systems, we then sort of like invert these systems to the status of having like an autonomous reality that exists over and above us. And then we submit ourselves under their authority, not recognizing that we created them, you know, and, they, and we kind of view them as these independent judging realities that stand outside of us. But in reality, that's not the case. That's exactly what happens with Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is a sort of... Uh, you know, composite of all of these various ideas that ought not to be used as some sort of judgmental authority that stands outside of us that then valorizes the film whether or not it should be good to go see or not to go see. Rotten Tomatoes is just simply, like you said, it's just an aggregate calculus. That's all, and it needs to be viewed simply as an aggregate calculus, not necessarily as the stamp of authority that tells you whether or not this film or... Maybe not that whether or not it tells you whether this film, but not to the degree that it tells you that this film is good or not good. And unfortunately, because of the rating system and because of the way that it's been relied upon so much, that's the way that the film website often gets used. What's, it's interesting to me, too, uh, the thing that the Screen Junkies video brought up that actually I, 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 I've noticed quite a bit, too, is that I, I think there's a lot of people who look at the website who don't realize how the website works. So they think all of these people are people paid by Rotten Tomatoes to like write right. the reviews. So they think Rotten Tomatoes is like a website that's like, oh, we hate DC movies, so we're going to fuck up anything that's a DC movie because we don't like DC because we love Marvel. you know. And it's kind of like it doesn't work like that. It's just literally it's a bunch of reviews who get submitted there nobody in rotten tomatoes is a paid movie reviewer that's they just right. a, they just bring the overall score together it's an aggregate it's an aggregate website it's like right. getting mad at imdb when a film gets greenlit where they post a film like oh this film's been greenlit now and it's in production and then go fuck you imdb for greenlighting that film you know it's like it's, it's right. it, that's not what they do right and that's the problem of relying in the aggregate score from a dispersed group of people who aren't in cahoots together, who may not even fucking ever speak to each other at all, who have their voiced opinions, you know, brought together into a single score. And then that single score, rather than being viewed as the product of these dispersed voices, is then viewed as the standard by which we ought to value or devalue the film. So that's the problem, is, you know, a film like... Wonder Woman that's probably in the 90s, right? I would imagine. Mm -hmm. in, in, I think it's like 92. Like yeah. The problem is, is now the film Wonder Woman is, or at least could be marketed as a an extremely high certified 90th percentile film rather than having this film stand on its merits in the complex nuance that it deserves um, as we understand the sort of panoply of voices of critics that are viewing this within their own context, which I think is a much better way not just to view films but to view the world in general. But, um, you know, it's easier. It's easier to just take this sort of aggregate as though, like, you know, the certified fresh 95% is the truth What's, of this film. Well, it's also, it's fascinating, too, how this, to me, also has really been the year that you've started to see rotten tomatoes become used almost like you know like you used to have quotes from critics in trailers and now they have the rotten tomatoes score so it's like mm -hmm. get out posted its rotten tomatoes score in a, in, a, in a trailer um baby driver posted like 100 percent on rotten tomatoes um yeah. uh, spider-man homecoming did the exact same thing so it's become a marketable 
thing for these, like, you know, in the same way that two thumbs up was at one point. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly, it's almost like a religious thing. You know, it's almost like the Rotten Tomato score then becomes the stamp of approval, the transcendent stamp of approval on this film that everyone looks to and they say, oh, man, Rotten Tomatoes has, uh, has, has placed its wand upon their shoulder or whatever the fuck the, the terminology you want to use is. They've somehow blessed this film. Therefore, the film is valuable, it- which is a terrible way of of determining whether or not you should go see a film or whether or not well, the interesting, good or... Well, and the interesting thing, too, is that actually, and I think the, they, the point they make at the end of it is actually rather than just relying on a score as the thing that makes you decide whether you should go do it, you should develop a relationship with with critics. So it's like, so, you know, mm. you, you, you find people who have similar tastes or who whose opinion you trust, and you look right. at what they have to say rather than just simply relying on aggregate idea of what a lot of diffuse people's opinions are you know so yeah. do you have do you have a couple of film critics that you really like i used to when i was a teenager i used to read peter travers a lot mostly because okay. you know it's rolling stone well, right? mostly because i had rolling stone so yeah. i used to read that um do, do you like mark kermode at all i like kermode yeah um again me and kermode don't always line up and i kind of always feel like that i'm he's one of those people i'm kind of always interested to hear what he has to say because i think he speaks very well um i would say there's very few critics that i kind of feel like my taste completely lines up with um so but funnily enough i get people who always want to know my opinion on things so and i think Mm -hmm. that's partially because i don't really have a i think my opinion zigzags a lot so it's very hard for me to find a critic who i feel like i align with you know i liked um for a long time i liked devin farachi you know i thought he wrote very well then he had his kind of problems and stopped writing for birth movies death um used to like a.o scott a lot uh haven't Mm -hmm. read him for a while um so I mean, like it's um, but then I also too I know the critics that I definitely don't like, but then there's always right. that part of me that's kind of fascinated sometimes to read people who I whose opinions I don't think I'm gonna. It's like it's like it's kind of fascinating to read Armand White to just see what crazy shit he'll come up with next. So it's like it's um, I mean it really depends. Hmm. What about you? Yeah, I mean I tend to like Kermode because he he he's a bit highbrow sometimes. Well, he's got he's and... got to love a lowbrow though as well. He does, yeah, yeah. He and and which is nice. He's, he's you know, the lone he... lover of Howard the Duck. <laughs> Dude, I used to love that movie too. <laughs> oh Jesus! But um, but yeah, I like I like Kermode. Um, uh, I too uh have, have quite or I've read a lot of Travers. Um, but uh, but no, I don't really tend to follow film critics so much as I look at certain websites and I'm not even familiar with the authors. So like I follow IndieWire or like Slash Film or or various things like that, right? Like those are the things that I'm – and I don't know the guy's names or the women's – the the gal's names. But it's more like the site or the source that I am – that I have in like my Twitter feed or whatever. But it's kind of weird too though because when you do look at say something like – when you look at say something like IndieWire or something, it's it's, it's different reviewers every single time. So – it's kind of like you're not really necessarily developing the relationship. Whereas like one of the things that I liked about, you know, one of the things I like is like you, you listen to Mark Commode because generally you're getting, you're getting a consistent wave of opinion. So you kind of have a gauge of where he sits with things. So it's like, so I know for instance, that when he sits and pontificates for about 10 minutes on how pain and gain is the most evil film ever made and how uh, Mm -hmm. Michael Bay has a, has a black, you know, 
vortex where his soul should be. I'm I'm kind of like yeah, but but Mark Kamoji fucking hate Michael Bay, so I I yeah. I'm I'm gonna take this with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean that then I'm like. Yeah. Mark Kermode, you're wrong about everything. I'm just kind of like, you know, I don't, I know I don't see eye to eye with Mark Kermode on this thing. So because I've developed that relationship and that awareness of him as a critic. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like if I went the rest of my life never reading another film criticism by a film critic ever again, I wouldn't be any worse off, you know? Like, I feel like for me, the relationships that I establish are with directors yeah. or with actors or with production companies. And now, of course, you and I have... Uh, you more so than me, but you and I and, and people who are either involved in the industry or just who are cinephiles, they have they have that luxury. We have that luxury because we invest our time into it, and that's something we love, whereas a lot of people don't mm. have that. You know, maybe they'll know the big names like the Spielbergs and the Scorseses and the Leos and the Charlize Therons, but, you know, they won't know who, I don't know, uh, Scoot McNary is, you know? They won't know who David Michaud is, you know? They don't really know the name of Guy Pierce, maybe. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, that guy in that movie that I liked, you know, where he didn't have memory or something like that. And you're like, oh, yeah, memento. But here's, yeah. here's the interesting thing, so, though, too, though, about this all, though, I think is the fact that I think there's, an, there's a problem with validation. People want their choices and their likes validated. So people yeah. who kind of come back and go, I've in, I, I say I feel this is good. So if you tell me it's bad, then you're telling me I'm stupid for liking it. And it's, it's that thing of people want their taste to be validated. And the problem with art of any sort is essentially it is always to a certain extent from whoever – the perspective of whoever's watching it. You know, it's like right. – so, I mean, it's hard to say art is good in a vacuum. And that's why it's important to right. – understand the taste of who's giving you the criticism. So I understand Mark Kermode's taste. Yeah, it means that I don't need to take him seriously with everything he says. But exactly. I think he's an interesting person to listen to. Um, yeah. But if well, you're just looking at a score wrong. that's trying to say, in a vacuum, this film is good because it has a score that says this many people said it was good. That's the problem. Right. Yeah, agreed. And I think I think the thing with you listening to someone like Mark Kermode is that even if someone is wrong in your eyes, you can still learn something valuable about how they viewed it and why they found value where maybe you didn't find value, you know? So it, it can still flesh out your perspective on a piece of art rather than just good versus bad. We need to get over that good versus bad. Well, and it's even like, Fucking, it's even like people pe need to read some Nietzsche. Well, it's even like, too, there's, there's always a problem with perspective. Because I've, you know, I've listened to people review the movie Detroit, and I've sat there and I've gone, you've actually dismissed, you, you're actually saying things aren't in the movie that are because you dismissed it going in. Because instead of actually right. watching the movie, you just decided what the movie was going to be before you went in. So I find it easy to dismiss your point of view because you've actually proved you've not even understood the text you were watching. And so right. when you can do that, but if you just take that at face value and say, this person is some sort of authority who has some right to tell me that it's good or bad. Whereas like, if you see the text and you understand it, then you can say, Hey, I don't fucking agree with you on that. And so I kind of know where you're at. If you're talking about films of this type. So I know exactly wh how, what level to which I take you seriously as a tastemaker and as an opinion giver. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're ultimately talking about is trust, mm -hmm. right? I like how you mentioned the idea of authority there, because that's kind of what I was trying to get at earlier with that concept of reification, because that's what you ultimately get with this concept is you trust in these authorities that we have erected. That's what we don't realize is that we have we have made them, we have granted them authority, but then we submit ourselves to them as though they are these uh, independent external figures that are standing over us, uh, granting legitimacy to these things um, in in the material world or in the social sphere, and that I think is a problem. Just just that's just a problem of humanity that um, we tend towards that type of, uh, I guess to submitting ourselves to those types of authorities in the first place. But you're absolutely right. I think it's because what you said, you know, we want our opinion validated. And I think that goes to the heart of why criticism or why movie reviews are an industry in the first place is because we want someone who's been given a stamp of authority to then, you know, bestow their authority or, or, or bestow, I'm sorry, bestow their authority onto our onto our idea as well by virtue of the fact that we agree with their criticism or vice versa. And so that is a kind of strange, weird clamoring for validation that I think is just kind of part of the human condition. Okay. And I think to just wrap it up, I think kind of like my feeling end of the day is that I, I, I think it's, it's dumb to come on either down on either side of this. Rotten Tomatoes should not be the be all end all, but it's also not evil. It's fine for what it is. Exactly. It is a review aggregator. So I would say always take what, the little thing saying this is a 95% good film, um, take that with a grain of salt. And actually, I'd say use it as a database to find people whose voices you think are interesting and who are worth following and try and use that as a way of finding opinions that you trust and who you yeah. think can actually because i mean the thing is i have a cine world card and i'm committed to fucking going to the movies all the time so that's that's different like i will go see things i'm only half interested in because i'm kind of like right. i'm just curious but there's a lot of people who like to them they only go to see the movies two or three times a year so if they look at this and they go that was fresh so therefore it, it's good and then they go to the cinema they feel like oh i was gypped but that's why it's good to develop a taste to sort of find people whose taste you agree with and so yeah go check out the screen junkies video if you're curious about any more conversation about how the aggregate of rotten tomatoes works and uh so um i don't always shit on screen junkies screen junkies is sometimes good so yeah yeah it's good if channel. anyone from screen junkies is listening uh your western top seven was fucking terrible but i don't hate you to some it was the fulfillment of a dream to others, it was an instrument of destruction. A creation that could change the course of history. It was stolen from my factory. Where's the package? This is the FBI! What do we tell the president? Tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. It's a rocket. A rocket? What? What's the matter? I don't know. There's something under the seat. Oh, my. What are we doing here? What are you supposed to do? Is it a bomb or something? No. I wouldn't touch that if I were you. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. Stand clear. What was that? Are you trying to kill yourself? I like it. Uh oh, we got company. You steer, I'll push. You're what? 
basically, uh, this is what the Rocketeer is. Rocketeer is about a, a, a pilot, a sort of hotshot young pilot who, uh, played by Bill Campbell, who works with Alan Arkin, who is an engineer slash, what would you call him, an aeronautical engineer, I guess, uh, and mechanic. I think he just seems to be general mechanic guy, mechanic guy. of things. Yeah, yeah, but he... He's just he's one of those Disney characters who's like, oh, it's him, he can fix anything. Yeah, I love it. And he shows up Howard Hughes at one point, where Howard Hughes is yeah. like in awe of this kind of like podunk tilt. It's like, damn, this grease monkey <laughs> just showed me up. Yeah, that's why I love it. Um... And they are preparing for the Nationals with their new airline or with their new plane. And this is in the 1930s. So it's 1938 is when we start off. And so they're preparing for Nationals and uh, through a sequence of events, the the stunt plane that they're preparing to fly kind of gets shot down on accident because there's a chase that's going on beneath them and they get some stray bullets up in the uh, up in the plane and the plane ends up having like a really hard crash landing and it ruins the uh it ruins the test flight and so now their chances at nash their chance for nationals is ruined but in the process that chase that was taking place below them ends up going through the airfield and the car that was being chased ends up dropping off a package and hides it in one of the other airplanes inside the hangar and then takes off and he ends up going to the hospital and he ends up getting killed later on but anyway it turns out that the package he dropped off was a jetpack and then this jetpack is being hunted after by the fbi and by some gangsters and the gangsters are working with a um performance of a lifetime timothy dalton uh playing an actor who's based off of errol flynn who ends up actually working for the nazis so the point is, is you got nazis. nazis you got gangsters you got actors in hollywood and you got the feds that are all going after this jetpack well bill campbell uh this this young stunt pilot has uh you know he's lost his test plane and so he and his his partner, played by Alan Arkin, the Mr. Fix-It guy, they need a way to recoup their investment that they lost on this flight and that they're not going to make to the national. So they they find this jetpack and they're like, oh, fuck, we can do something with this jetpack. And they end up using it because there's a, a problem that takes place at an air show and Bill Campbell busts out the rocket pack and he ends up saving this guy in a plane and then, you know, the media covers it because it's the 1930s and everyone talks like, hey, it's a, it's a rocket man. Hey, print this. It's a rocket man. A, hey, what do we call this rocket man? Hey, what do we call him? How about the rocketeer? That sounds good. Let's put it on the front page press. Um, and so then. But they got like little newsy boys who they, you know, put a, put a, like a nickel in their cup and take a paper. Exactly. And so because of Christian that. Christian Bale's there dancing. Yeah, exactly. And so because of that, the rocketeer becomes like this celebrity hero guy in the Los Angeles area. And then he ends up uh, having to fight Nazis through another series of events. And he saves the day at the end. And we can get into all this later. But that's basically the plot of this is it's a rocket man. Fucking who blimp saves the day. shows up. Yeah. A, 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 a Zeppelin. It's like, how do, how, do you, how do you sneak into L.A. with nobody watching? Yeah. You bring in a fucking blimp. That's right. Well, you know, it's before radar, I think. Was, did they have radar in the 1930s? I'm pretty sure the Brits had radar. I mean, how, how do you not I notice like a big on the fucking Zeppelin? Because yeah. they definitely had radar by the time of the Battle of Britain. So radars, maybe, maybe they just slid in under under the radar. Yeah, it was exactly. So, Kier, what did you think of uh, the Rocketeer? Because you'd never seen the Rocketeer before. I'd never seen the Rocketeer, no. Um, it's one of those ones that gets brought up a lot with people kind of like all nostalgic and shit for it. And it was I remember, too, because Joe Johnson ended up directing Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, very much off the back of the fact that he was the director of the Rocketeer. Right. Um, and uh, my feel about the Rocketeer was probably a little bit similar to what you felt about uh, Josie and the Pussycats. It's very winning, very likable. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it while I was watching it. Um, 
I think, yeah, I mean, I wasn't blown away, but I certainly enjoyed yeah. the experience of watching it. And I, I think my, my only major problem with it is that for a movie called The Rocketeer, he does not rocketeer much. There's <laughs> there's not a lot of him actually rocketeering. And he's actually not very good at rocketeering at any point during the film. Yeah, because, like, I mean, he basically, he gets the jetpack and then he only has it for like a few days. Right. This, yeah, I and mean, there's a kind of implication because he get, it, it, the the jetpack gets. I was surprised that the jetpack blows up at the end because Timothy Dalton kind of tries to take the jetpack to like fly away. He's like, "I'm, I have won. I finally beat you, Rocketeer. Fuck you. I'm gonna get away with the jetpack." But it was like leaking. Um, yes. And yeah. yeah. And so as he's getting away, it catches fire and blows up. And then um, a pretty cool sequence where uh, Jennifer Connelly and Billy Campbell have to uh, outrun the blast of a Zeppelin yeah, uh, and jump rad. onto a plane, which, again, is a really cool sequence. I mean, it's really it's really, really well done. But I was surprised. I was like, oh, fuck, like. How's he going to rocketeer without a rocket? Um, but um, but yeah, then at the end, Alan Arkin, like uh, Jennifer Connelly, I can't remember how, but somehow she got the plans for how the well, rocket so works. She gets kidnapped by Timothy Dalton's character, remember? And yeah. she's in his house and she finds his little his little special lair where he's got that radio yeah. that connects him to the Germans and then his Nazi book. But she finds the plans when she's in there and she stiff, stuffs it down her bra. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, the big dude... Who I, I I have to admit this. Um, I kind of thought for the first half of the movie that uh, Tiny Ron Taylor, the guy who was like the, the big henchman dude, because he so obviously had this giant thing of prosthetic makeup on his face. <laughs> I kind of thought it was going to turn out that Timothy Dalton was actually him. Oh. And that he'd been like, <laughs> as an actor, he'd been going out with like makeup on pretending to be a henchman. And it was going to be like uh, at the end of Body Double where the Indian turns out it was actually that guy the whole time in this big prosthetic makeup mask. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it was uh, – it, it, it wasn't that. We were no. just supposed to think that was his face. Yes, that. Which is weird too because also Tiny Ron Taylor has a fucking grizzled face. I was like kind of like why did you need to put like this big thing of makeup on him? You know what I was thinking? Because this was right around the time when fucking Dick Tracy came out too. I think Dick Tracy came out the year before. And didn't they mm-hmm. have like weird looking prosthetics on some of the guys' faces and – well, it's so weird, too, because this film essentially got greenlit because Batman happened. So, I mean, it's mm. like Batman 89 happened and people were like, hey, kids love comic books. Let's make comic book movies. <laughs> but instead of kind of going like, hey, let's adapt famous superhero comic books. They were like, hey, you remember those serials from the 1930s? Like, that's that's what kids want. They want like 1930s serial characters. Hey, when I was a kid, that's definitely what I wanted. So they were right, at least with this kid here. But um, but yeah, no, and it's it's. It's interesting because I actually hadn't realized, too, that this was a comic book that was created in, like, the 80s. This wasn't, like, based off, like, an old serial or something like mm. that. Um, and it's so it's kind of deliberately trying to affect those kind of... And so, you know, it's like Indiana Jones. It's, it's using the time period and trying to recreate the concept of those serials but modernizing it. But right. still keeping it period set. Okay. Um, and, I, you know, I like the fact that it included, like, real people like Howard Hughes and then I, I obviously as a as a lover of classic Hollywood I, I also loved all like the uh, references to like Carol Lombard and you know sort of famous stars of the time and stuff like that and they and, filmed and they filmed it in the famous Ennis house in uh, in Los Feliz which is where they filmed yeah. um, like Blade Runner kind of made it popular and mm-hmm. a bunch of other films have been filmed on the interior and the exterior which is a, a famous uh, oh what's his name uh, Frank Lloyd Wright Uh, architectural design and i i have to say yeah i mean so 
this film, and I and I think that is kind of it. I think this film's strong points are all in its, its sort of aesthetic value. Um, I mean, it's it very much feels like a kind of save the cat type script where everything's <laughs> kind of like spelled out for you structure wise, and it's like, but it's it's interesting too because um, I was reading about it and it said that the film one of the problems the film had was because Disney was originally going to release it through Touchstone and then did, they decided to release it as a Disney film. But the problem they had, one of the reasons they think the box office didn't do very well, is because people thought it was a kids' film. And I still oh, don't really. really get why they decided to yeah. release this as a Disney film. It's so strange to me. Yeah, there's a lot of violence in it. I was watching it last night. There's thinking guns that. and all sorts of shit. Yeah, well, yeah. you know what? When it first struck me that oh shit this is a disney film was when the guy that says don't worry folks it's all under control when they go into his office and he's like dead and i was like oh fuck that's kind of dark if you're expecting well, so they have like the dude disney. who he like kind of the, the big dude like crushes that that guy in the hospital who's yeah. working for the mob yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of you know violence and then there's one bit too when wc fields comes in and stares at jennifer connelly's breast there's a, I, I will say there's a lot of male gaze in this movie as well. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Like Jen- Jennifer, Jennifer Connelly's cleavage is out there for everyone <laughs> oh, to see oh, an yeah. awful it is a- lot. It is off the chain. There is no way that's a Disney movie, you know? I know. Um, but it's interesting, too, because I was kind of thinking, right, how um, I was kind of thinking, like, this actually has, I think, a slightly similar problem to one of the things I thought about Baby Driver, which is, like, I really like this film, but I find the leads so bland that they're hard for me to really care much about. Oh, like, really? So you didn't like Ansel Elgort or whatever the fuck his name is? Oh, I didn't mind Ansel Elgort, but he was so... I, I it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I felt like you could have stuck like 20 other people in that role. It wasn't like... Okay. I didn't think like he was intrinsically what made that work. I kind of felt like it was good in spite of him. And you felt that way about Bill Campbell as the Rocketeer in this one. I just thought... I just think he he looks so wooden and I get that Mm. they're kind of going for this kind of old fashioned matinee idol. And certainly visually he fits that bill. And I don't think he's a bad actor. I just think the character is so bland and I just don't find Mm. him very interesting. And it's one of those things that, again, I always credit Chris Evans with in terms of, uh, as an actor is I think like as captain America, he manages to be very charismatic in a very bland role. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So the character isn't very well written, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. His name's Cliff Secord, uh, or the Rocketeer, and he's kind of um, a rural, simple guy, you know, kind of aw shucks, like he doesn't really get women. You know, his girlfriend is Jennifer Connelly, and she obviously wants something from him that he kind of is not able to give because he's kind of just dense about certain things. And so he plays that stereotype of uh, of he's kind of like this dense, simple guy that has some demons that he, and I don't want to say demons, but he has some minor obstacles to overcome in order to realize his character's arc, right? And he does it by becoming the superhero. And he's he's ultimately like a good old boy, kind of like the prototypical, maybe middle of the country, red state American who is given a certain measure of power, this time through technology, and uh, he becomes a good guy because of it and, and learns a lot in the process. But, you know, the stakes aren't really high and his character doesn't really have much to struggle through. And so I think it kind of he's, – he's very underwritten in that sense. Well, it's also – it's weird too when you look at the list of people that they considered for the roles or auditioned for the roles. Oh, and you're kind of like how they end up with Billy Campbell. It's yeah. like – 
It's like um okay, so Kevin Costner was one of was one of the first actors considered for it. Matthew Modine, who I don't think would have been no. a good fix. I don't think Matthew Modine's a particularly interesting actor. But then you have uh these are all um these are all guys who actually audition for the part. Uh Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, Bill Paxton, Emilio Estevez, and Johnny Depp. And apparently Johnny Depp was actually Disney's favorite choice for it. Huh. Um, and Bill Paxton commented that apparently he was really close to getting the lead. Um, and apparently Vincent D'Onofrio turned it down. Um, huh. But it's like, it's so weird. Because again, you kind of think like Bill Paxton is like the perfect kind of G-shucks kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Like he, and then you think of someone like, again, like Kurt Russell, who's just so intrinsically charismatic. And it just it yeah. feels really weird that they just ended up with this guy who I don't know of anything he'd ever been in before this is just this kind of like, oh, I guess it's him. Well, maybe it's because he's kind of the really good looking guy. So he's got that strapping leading leading uh, leading male look. Maybe yeah, that's why. I mean, because like, can you imagine Emilio Estevez or Billy Campbell? Like in terms of physical appearance, Billy Campbell's tall. He's strapping. He's a good looking guy. He's got that kind of parted hair that i guess matters <laughs> you know i mean he looks like someone out of the 1930s you know yeah actually though do you know do you know what's really funny uh because i think i've mentioned this before back when i was a kid i used to um always i used to look up movies in my movie encyclopedia because mm-hmm. this was kind of before you know it was really sort of popularized to go on like IMDb and stuff like that. Um, I think IMDb already existed, but I didn't really know about it at the time. And so my dad had all of these movie encyclopedias where you could look up movies. You could see who all the cast were. Then you could also look up actors, look through the list of their movies. And there had been a misprint in this encyclopedia where um, it confused Billy Campbell with Bruce Campbell. So <laughs> I actually thought for years that Bruce Campbell was the lead in The Rocketeer. Oh. Um, and in a weird way, I kind of wish Bruce Campbell was the lead in The Rocketeer. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to think of what's missing. Like, yes, there's yeah. not much there. And I think he kind of plays the aw shucks a little too on the nose sometimes. And, and again, I don't I don't dislike him as an actor. I actually no, quite liked either. him in the killing. I thought he was I thought he was good in the killing. Yeah. No, I, I like I like Billy Campbell. And I actually am surprised that this film wasn't a bigger launch pad for him. Like, I'm kind of really curious. Do you know what he did immediately after this? Um, I think he did a lot of kind of, like, random stuff. I think he knocked around a lot. I mean, this wasn't a particularly successful movie. It was kind of seen as a flop. Yeah. So, I mean, I think he's... Yeah, I, I don't... I think he kind of bounced around an awful lot. I mean, uh, looking at his list of films here... Um, I mean, again, like, the thing that I really remember seeing him in again was The Killing, Um you know, but um, he plays one of the suitors in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's in Gettysburg, uh, both Gettysburg and Gods and Generals. Um, okay, so yeah, those are big, those are big a, like, films, but he just had small parts for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, and then he's in a bunch of kind of straight to DVD or straight to video crap. And then he's he plays that... the abusive husband in Enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's in Ghost Town, weirdly, with um, Ricky Gervais. Okay. Um, yeah, and he's it's a bunch of random. He's been in a lot of television. Like, he seems to have been working pretty consistently in television. Yeah. Um, appearing in an episode of this. He was in the fucking OC. Carter Buckley in the OC. I don't even remember that. And then, yeah, and then he was in uh, the 4400. So there was a big, there's a big gap when he wasn't in films for like five years. And that's because he was the main role in the 4400, which I never watched. 
But I didn't I even re- really, the 40, 4400 is one of those shows that I was kind of like, what, they made how many seasons of that? Yeah, I know, me too. I'm actually surprised that it had that many just looking at it now um, because it, uh, it, it didn't really seem like a very popular show, but apparently it was. Weirdly, know? I feel like he's kind of like one of those guys. Like, like the thing that separates him and Matthew Fox is Matthew Fox just happens to get cast as the bland lead on a much more successful TV show. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing of... You know, I feel like I don't think he's a bad actor, but I think he's very interchangeable. And I think he yeah. could have been. Agreed. It's it's a it's a matter of luck where you and what part you happen to get at what time that actually sort of like pushed your success. But I I, I kind of don't think he was ever going to be the next big thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, but then on the other hand, the funny thing is I was looking at this. Do you know uh, out of the list of people who were supposed to be who were considered for um, Jennifer Connelly's part, uh, one of them was Elizabeth McGovern, which is funny because uh, because um, they're both in Once Upon a Time in America and uh, Ju- and um, Jennifer Connelly plays the younger version of Elizabeth McGovern <laughs> in Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, that is so funny. Well, I, I will say this. I mean, I I have a huge celebrity crush on Jennifer Connelly. She was in a movie called Career Opportunities that um, I just remember. It's like she's working at like some big store, like a Target or some shit like that. And like these guys come and rob it and she's in there. And I remember her riding on like this mechanical horse. And I was like, isn't that like the beginning of my sexual development? And she's riding all sensually on this mechanical horse and like a tight fitting shirt. And I was like, who is that beautiful creature? And that was, that was obviously after Labyrinth, but I think it was before I really, you know, when I was a little boy, I didn't like look at Jennifer Connelly as a 14 year old in Labyrinth and was like, oh my God, she's fucking hot or something. Right. But this was like at, you know, my developing, uh, sexuality, Jennifer Connelly was like one of those women that introduced me to, you know, I guess what I was attracted to in women. Um, maybe that's why I date a lot of brunettes. I have no fucking clue, but I think she is actually really kind of charming and endearing in this film beyond the fact that I think she's gorgeous. She's got a kind of weird career too, Jennifer Connelly, because she's kind of like one of those people who just suddenly for about three or four years, like she was always kind of around and then she just got that point where she hit big for about three or four years. So like she had like like beautiful mind time Requiem for a dream, won an Oscar for beautiful mind. She was like, the lead in Ang Lee's terrible Hulk film uh, gets she a bunch of Darwin? nominations. Remember she again did that for, Darwin film? Yeah, that's much later. But About, gets okay. gets a, gets a, a lead in House of Sand and Fog. Gets gets a bunch of awards for house nominated for a bunch of awards in House of Sand and Fog, and then kind of like it falls off again. She's in like Dark Water, Little Children, Blood Diamond. You know, a lot of things, but mm. you never feel like it's like any more like Jennifer Connelly being the big name in it. She's like. Oh, Jennifer Connelly's a good actress. She's one of the people in this movie. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, like, that's kind of what I was thinking with the Darwin film because the Darwin film doesn't feel like it was that long after. Well, Darwin film wasn't a very big movie. That was kind of like a an attempt at kind of prestige filmmaking. Well, that, but, but that's the point. Very little attention. Yeah, but that, that's my point. Is that I would have thought that it was trying to be an award season type of film well, I, but i think failed. she's kind of in there because she's married to paul bettany so it's like hey we got we, we've attached paul bettany as darwin oh we can get jennifer Connolly as well because he's married to her sure yeah. sure but again that's not my point my point is just that i feel like for some reason that's that point where i feel like she kind of was doing something but didn't get the attention that maybe no. she would have years earlier but it doesn't feel like that 
that that distant from when she did have that kind of peak of success. So it's almost like she it's like a triangle, like or like a bell curve. Like she peaked and then it just kind of dropped off really suddenly because it was only what? a couple years after. When it's funny how much you look at like the films that she's been in since then and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, she's in that as well. So it's like, you know, mm. you watch like that awful you see like that awful day the earth stood still film and you're I, I kind of remember oh, yeah. Keanu Reeves as like the alien in that. But I'd forgotten it was Jennifer Connelly. You know, I think of yeah. Blood Diamond. I think of Leonardo DiCaprio and um, John Jeonju, whose name I can't say, John Hansu, um, and but I forget. Oh yeah, Jennifer Connelly was like the photographer in that. You mm. know, Little Children. I think of Patrick Wilson and um, and uh, Kate Winslet, and then I'm like, oh yeah, and Jennifer Connelly was his wife. You know, it's like mm. she, he's she's not like had like a lot of like big. I am the main name in this since kind of like the. Since a while, like I think even like looking at this, like Dark Water is the last time I think she's had like her name as the main name on the title. Hmm. Yeah, which I think is really interesting because I think she's extremely talented. There was a movie called Shelter that Paul Bettany directed that was kind of like an indie film about her being a drug addict and a homeless woman. And I Hmm. think that was kind of so that's probably the other one that was kind that that's the recent one where she actually had it was like her as the main the main force in it but i I don't think anyone saw it right yeah well i think she is absolutely charming as fuck in this movie and uh yeah so i I don't know i I, did i I did actually funnily enough because i looked up because again i was kind of fascinated by this so i did actually look up jennifer connelly again and like you know you occasionally see like uh, she had a she had an anecdote on um, jimmy kimmel live about her having to get a merkin made for uh her being an american pastoral and uh, so I was kind of like, oh, yeah, she's very charming. And she does how to like <laughs> she does how to work a talk show circuit because yeah. I mean, she's been doing it for ages. But anyway, sure. I, I, I will say I don't I think she's fine in this. I'm, I don't think she's I, I find the love story element of this the, the least interesting part by far, because it's the very kind of like it's it's like it's so kind of like, oh, you never tell me anything. Why don't you tell me anything? And then he shows right, up and screws exactly. up. Why did you ruin this? Because you told me. To, you told me that I needed to tell you things, so you're the first person I came up. And you're kind of like, I don't believe these people uh, are this yeah. stupid. Like it's like it's so yeah. mechanical trying to get conflict into this, and it's fine because you know I, I I don't I don't mind that that element of the film is not that interesting because there's plenty of other good things, and that's why we should talk about Timothy fucking Dalton. In this film <laughs> I was waiting because he's fucking awesome, and I it's almost like I'm just sitting there going like, <laughs> where the fuck was some of this charm when you were Bond? uh yeah no he's great he's fucking phenomenal yeah he just um it's like every you sent me a message and i can't remember exactly what you said but it was basically that you know he was enjoying the shit out of himself i said i said said, timothy dalton is slaying it in this movie yeah he um it's like he tastes every word that comes out of his mouth and you can tell that's called chewing scenery he's chewing the fuck out of the scenery chewing the fuck out of it he is so good now it's interesting so you probably know this but for anyone listening so the character that he plays is an actor by the name of neville sinclair as he says the number three box office star in hollywood i love neville that sinclair. i love that too that he knows exactly what it is dude and it's the number three and he brags yeah. about that i'm the number three box office drop. behind cagney and somebody else right probably um yeah. but whatever it is he is neville sinclair and apparently it's based off of errol flynn yeah and i guess the reason and i did not know this but the reason is because apparently there was some speculation that errol flynn was a nazi spy yeah, this is a conspiracy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, partially it's because Errol Flynn has a really muddled backstory and people don't okay. really, because he kind of bullshit a lot. And he was like, I mean, he was Australian, um, but a lot of his backstory, he's had a lot of different biographies and, you know, he told a lot of bullshit on his way to okay. Hollywood. So, I mean, I, I suppose in a weird way, it kind of does make sense that Errol Flynn could have, you know, because he, he, he did make up a lot of shit. So I suppose maybe maybe people could believe he was a double agent. Like, obviously, I, I think it was always more a fanciful conspiracy theory than something with any real legitimacy to it. But, uh, you know, right. plus he was. He was kind of an asshole. Errol Flynn was yeah. not a nice person. So again, it kind of, I suppose it kind of makes sense, but he's that, again, he's that perfect kind of asshole. Who's like grinning and charming to your face and then fucks you over from behind. Well, that's why there's a saying that goes in like Flynn. Cause I think it's about being well, in there. I, like I think Errol actually Flynn that saying there. more comes from the fact that, uh, he uh, got in trouble with the law for uh, statutory rape. So I think that's actually where in like oh. Flynn comes Ooh. from. Oh, oh, I thought it just meant that he was like a, a charmer, like a, a ladies' man, and so he like well, he. Like I mean, that was that's the thing that became notorious about him was basically wrecked his career was um, that uh, he got brought up on statutory rape charges. Oh shit, I did not know that. Well, that doesn't surprise me then that uh, Neville Sinclair, you know, played by Timothy Dalton, would have a similar trajectory in his path because he's kind of like that. He's a little smarmy, he's a little schmoozy, and you never really know how old Jennifer Connelly is, but you know for a fact that he's older and he doesn't really give a fuck. He just kind of no. wants to get in there. But I think I think the thing that's again that's so fun about this is the kind of pastiche elements where they're so aware of the kind of iconography of classic Hollywood. And so again, it's kind of like so okay, at the end, you have this you have this thing. This kind of I like the whole standoff. Okay. So um obviously uh so you have Neville Sinclair's working it has paid the mob to try and get this jetpack back. So he's right. kind of standing there in a standoff where the mob is backing him and they're kind of like holding um, they're holding the rocketeer at gunpoint being like, give us the fucking rocket pack. And oh. then uh, and then he's like, actually, did you know that Neville Sinclair's a fucking Nazi? And then <laughs> Paul Sorvino um He's great like, in this, by he's the way. He's great, actually. yeah, Paul Servino. He's playing a mob boss. Shockingly, Paul Servino <laughs> is very good at playing a mob boss. Um, yeah. He kind of looks at him and goes like, what the fuck? I'm an American. Uh, you know, I may, what, I'm, what I do may be illegal, but I'm still a fucking American. Yeah, and so, yeah. and, then, and then it's like, <laughs> Neville Sinclair's like, ah, fuck it. And then all like the fucking Nazis just, who've just been hanging around outside the Griffin Observatory, suddenly decide to all converge. Yeah, yeah, I, I I love it. Well, see, the thing is, is I actually didn't realize this until this time around. So Neville Sinclair is actually German the whole time. He's yeah, just putting he on, puts on a German accent. accent at the end, yeah. Yeah, I did not know that. So then when he says that thing and like, so the gangsters turn their guns to him. They're like, what's the deal? Are you actually a Nazi? And he's kind of like, ah, fuck it. He says something in German. All of a sudden, these fucking Incidentally, soldiers. Alex, who does speak German, just said uh, said his pronunciation is terrible. Oh, okay. Just, so just, he's just if you wanted that information. <laughs> and there's no subtitles, so you there's actually no don't know what's being no. said in any of the German uh, phrases. But, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't even pick this up until I watched it this time around. Because I haven't seen the movie since I was a fucking kid. That actually the whole point isn't that he was like an English actor who was like a, like a spy for the Germans as an English actor. It's he wasn't, like, like, he was the, like, he wasn't like the king at the time who was kind of like, you know, that Hitler, he's got some good ideas. Yeah, no, he was a fucking like German plant this whole time. Yeah. 
Just, that's like some real foresight there. You're yeah. like, like, okay, before Nazi Germany's <laughs> even started, we're going to plant a German who's going to build his way up through the Hollywood system so that yeah. one day when Hitler comes to power, we'll have somebody perfectly <laughs> in there to kind of like feed us back, even though America is not currently at war with us or, ha- or, 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 or our enemy. And but just in case. Just in case it could possibly happen. That's right. That's and, right. And, you know, we all remember that famous incident of the blimp exploding over L.A. that happened. You know, that's that yeah, famous you know, historical incident. Yeah, they play fast and That, and that took out the, the land on the Hollywood land sign. Yeah, no, I, okay, I do like that. So that, I love that's... that. I love that gag. That, is the, that the exploding yes. blimp takes out the land in the Hollywood yeah, land okay, sign. Yeah, okay, so for people, for people listening, so uh, in Hollywood, the Hollywood sign, it used to actually say Hollywood land. In it. And then they took out the land part. And they've actually done this in a couple of different movies yeah. where they give reasons why the land kind of gets either blown up or it falls down or they take it out. And then they're like, ah, fuck it. Let's not put it back. But in The Rocketeer, the story goes that this Zeppelin blows up at the end and after uh, Timothy Dalton you know, flies out and he gets blown up by the rocket and stuff like that. And as the Zeppelin falls down to the earth, it crashes in the land part. And so it just leaves Hollywood. And that's the story of why the Hollywood sign says Hollywood. Incidentally, it's kind of you're, – you're, you're kind of an Angelino. You're from, you're from Orange County, but you're kind of, kind of an Angelino. I was, born, I was born in L.A. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, did you know you, – you know the, the history of why the Hollywood sign is there, right? No, actually, I don't. It's actually literally just a real estate company. It was just advertising real estate, and that's what Hollywood Land was. It was a, a, a real estate um, scheme. Oh, okay. Um, and that's why they took then they took the land out because you know then it's just Hollywood, you know, as a as a thing. But yeah, yeah that's 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 it. It's actually really boring. It was it's yeah. literally it's an old real estate sign that people just said, hey, people keep saying that's cool, so let's just keep it up because it's become a yeah. tourist thing now. I mean, I do know that you used to be able to go up there, and now you're not allowed to anymore. They they block it off, and it's actually really of, underwhelming when you see the Hollywood sign. You're kind of like, yeah, eh, I've seen it. Well, it's see, not that interesting. He, no, it's not that interesting. I mean, the thing that's weird is is it's literally visible everywhere you are. So yeah. it's nothing spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it's just like driving down the road and seeing a billboard for Nando's. You know, yeah. you're kind of like, oh, there's that Nando's billboard that you see every single but day. That's, here's, like the, that here's the problem. LA has like no interesting landmarks in it. Like right. besides maybe like, what are you, What else are you going to do? Like the Tower Record, the, sorry, the, the Tower Records building, you know, that. Right, right. Or, you know, it's I like. I mean, there, there, there are very few like like you would say landmarks that would draw people there and the hollywood sign i guess kind of just de facto not even because the sign is cool or like you say the story is very generic but it's because it says hollywood and people fetishize hollywood and they associate that with celebrity culture so they see the sign and then supposedly the sign like is a representation of celebrity and power and money and fame and all when i think it's one of those things that it's kind of one of your only obvious establishing shot things for la like you know (laughs) la doesn't have a lot of obvious establishing shot landmarks so it's kind of yeah, like what palm trees yeah, uh, yeah. The, the the sort of what is it the Citibank uh tower or the yeah. Citibank building in downtown LA the circular one but unless you're from LA you don't really know that that's exactly. LA it's like even <laughs> like you know when they blow up that building in Independence Day you're kind of like oh look is that that building and in LA some that they city up, that they yeah <laughs> it's like you know where's like they built they're blowing up like the Empire State Building in New York and they're blowing, blowing up the White House in Washington DC you're like oh they they blew up a building in LA, one of those one of those yeah. LA buildings. 
Yeah, and then the funny thing is nobody at the time that Independence Day was made actually lived in downtown Los Angeles. <laughs> now they've gone through a sort of reemergence where a lot of people are in downtown LA. But da- at that point in like, what, 96 or whatever, downtown LA was dilapidated, dilapidated as fuck. So nobody was there. So if the aliens blew it up, it would have been like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> it's after hours. There's nobody there. <laughs> uh, going back to the Rocketeer, I want to kind of chart the the progress of how this motherfucker rocketeers okay so okay. so yeah. we have we have like there is actually quite a short kind of like we're fucking around with the rocket trying to figure out how it works sequence which i appreciate they're kind of like okay yeah. you know we figured out that this rocket it fucking rockets and now we just need to like figure out an excuse to get it and i actually think the sequence like so there's a sequence like as austin mentioned at a kind of plane show which again is like a cool thing and that's one of those things yeah. where you're kind of like oh that's one of those weird things that they did in the 30s they used to just have plane shows and you're kind of like, got no they still have them i got i i used to go every year down in san diego at miramar actually down in that area they do them every year those air shows they're yeah. fucking awesome well, anyway, so they're at this air show, and um, there's a problem with one of the engines because was it somebody? They, he goes through like the jet stream or something. Is the same reason that Tom Cruise crashes in Top Gun? You know, it's I, I can't remember. Wait, what happens? Why does the plane? It's like he goes through old. a lot. I can't remember something like he hits like the weird like wash or slipstream or something or some. Oh fuck yeah, I don't I don't remember. Some, but some yeah, fucking, something happens. Some some plane shit happens that causes him to no longer be able to airplane anymore. So he yeah. then so then in a really really extended sequence where he's kind of like I'm gonna put on the rocket. No, you can't put on the rocket. No, we gotta go do. You're kind of like you're spending a lot of time. Putting this rocket on, the guy's fucking crashing there. So, yeah, yeah, this plane's gonna crash into the earth. So he and just maybe he just kill throws a crowd, on the rocket. So. <laughs> he's got the helmet with the dorsal fin thing that allows him to steer. Which and is awesome. He flies up, and it's actually really cool because you're kind of like you can kind of see where the real stunt stuff is coming in, like the real aerial stuff. Incidentally, apparently Billy Campbell was a scare was scared of flying, which was. Uh, oh. But of course, because like it's a helmet thing, you know, it doesn't really fucking matter who's actually doing mm. it. You could easily put a stunt man in it but anyway um he then so he then rescues the guy um in a pretty cool sequence because you're kind of like i remember even as a kid thinking like what is a guy with a jetpack like what's his abilities as a superhero like what can he what can he do here and this is like you're like okay yeah he can go rescue guys whose plane is gonna crash and stuff so he does that um then he doesn't really do anything with the rocket again until he goes to the nightclub where Jennifer Connelly and Timothy Dalton are at which point, like, again, he doesn't really do much very successfully. He kind of flies around the room a bit and then eventually crashes through the ceiling uh, and, and gets out yeah. and then yeah. doesn't really again, do anything with the rocket until the end where I suppose he has the bit where he helps kind of get away. Cause he pushes the car with the rocket. It makes the car go super fast Well, see, I have a theory on this. I think that this was the first film of what was supposed to be a franchise because there's a scene at the end at the Griffith Observatory when he – when they're like, oh, man, the Nazis are in the Zeppelin and they're going to get away now and we're not going to be able to get them and they've got Jennifer Connelly. Ah, damn it. And the FBI and the gangsters are like, oh, we can't get them. And then all of a sudden, Billy Campbell, a rocketeer, runs up to where there's this American flag planted. He's like, Um, what this um, place needs is a hero. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. And all of a sudden, there. I think it's actually Paul Sorvino that goes, 
not so fast and looks up and there's the rocketeer standing there in like the superhero pose with the flag and i think that's supposed to be the moment yeah. that he has that he kind of really becomes the rocketeer like yeah he was labeled the rocketeer but that's the moment when he actually embodies the hero aspect of it and then i think that that, that kind of would be maybe that there's a franchise and then the reason i say that further is because at the very end Jennifer Connelly pulls out the engineering designs and gives them to PV, aka Alan Arkin, and there's that idea that's like, oh fuck, they could rebuild the rocket pack. But here's Sequel. the thing, like, even too, like, okay, so if you actually look at what he does in the climax, so he manages to get onto the plane, on, onto the onto the zeppelin, he like flies. Does, he still has the right. He flies onto the zeppelin, doesn't he, with the rocket? Yeah, he flies yeah. onto the zeppelin. Okay, so uh, the big dude, Lother. He try he like straps himself to uh, uh, to the to the top of the blimp, tries to kill him, but he falls off, and yeah, so it's 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 uh you know, and he's like stuck on top, so it's kind of like it's not really like a big fight sequence. He kind of like tricks him and makes him fall off to the side, really, and then right. then he sort of come down, and like Jennifer Connelly's like kind of the one who like. Like, a bunch of guys, like, fall out of the Zeppelin almost by accident. Like, they sort of fall and, like, the glass... Somebody needed to make some stronger glass on this Zeppelin because, like, people just literally, like, touch it and just fling themselves out of it. Yes. And then... Uh, he doesn't kill... I, I kind of wonder if this is because it's a Disney film. Like, he doesn't kill anybody. And he doesn't even seem to really hurt anybody. He just kind of rescues people. Because even Timothy Dalton, yep. like, he doesn't really... I think he maybe punches Timothy Dalton at one point. Yeah, they well, they have a fight. Yeah. yeah, it's a little it's a little fight, but it's not bloody, no. and no one gets the shit kicked out of them. Yeah, and and Timothy, and then I, doesn't Jennifer Connelly like smack him on the head or something at once? Yeah, she smacks a couple people on the head. She smacks Lother on the head. Remember, with a statue at one point, she smacks uh, she smacks Timothy Dalton on the head with a with a vase earlier on, and then she smacks him on the head again. That's she's she's there to smack people on the head. I'm just when, saying, just at the right moment. I'm just not at the right sure moment. how competent. <laughs> Billy Campbell is as a rocketeer. That's all I'm saying. I think I'm not sure how good he's rocketeering in this film. See, that's why I think this is an origin story. That's what this is. This is an origin story of how the rocketeer came to be. And you have to remember, it only ends in 1939. Mm-hmm. So the rise of the Nazis is still just around the corner. Well, I, I, I have a question about this, actually. I have a the question. rocketeer is going to, you know, he's got a job to do in the future. I have a question. Okay. So okay. Say, say this all works out. Say Timothy Dalton gets the rocket gets it to the nazis he takes his secret covert blimp out of la gets back to germany with it here's my question does he keep going around the pacific or does he go all the way back across new york that's a long motherfucking either way he's not gonna get there for like a couple weeks go around mexico go go over mexico and go back you know i I guess i know it Either way, it's going to take like a couple weeks. Yeah, that it's going to take him a while. Slow, because like zeppelins are not fast. Yeah, no. But here's here's my question though. Here's my question. Okay. Yeah. What good does having a bunch of rocket packs do for the Nazis? Like, what does that well, actually remember. aid them in any way? Okay. So there's that short little video <laughs> I know, I know. that Howard Hughes shows, right? Yeah. And so for people listening, uh, there's this sequence where Howard Hughes is actually in this, and he's Played the one the who actually. What's up? Played by the guy from Lost. Yes, yes. And he's actually the guy that designed this rocket pack. And then he realizes, you know, that uh, if in the if put into the wrong hands, then it could be a very deadly thing. So he wants to burn the plans and not make any more. But the reason is because they had a spy, apparently, who lost his life getting this video footage out of Nazi Germany, which shows this army of rocketeers that are wielding guns. Now, in the 1930s, that would be a pretty badass weapon. Like, think about it. On the battlefield... You'd be able to, one, you'd be able to cover more ground, 
But two, you'd also you'd be, be an open like, target. Yeah, but you'd be able to. You'd be like. But this is before like. Do you know what land, also? Do you know what's also a really really good shit. weapon? Airplanes. Because they can like hold yeah. bombs and shit, and they also have guns, and they could cover yeah, more but ground. Ju- but I think the idea is just imagine if all of the soldiers, or if you had like a huge contingent, like you have the cavalry versus you have yeah, that, um, that, like that, that foot really troops. did really well going into the world wars. The Listen, cavalry. don't shit, don't shit on this plan. I I think it's really cool. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, okay, there's definitely that little kid part of me <laughs> that loves the idea of having a jetpack. Like I'm not like, yes. and I think that's kind of where this movie definitely appeals and where the nostalgia comes in. Is is there's something yes. that's just so lovable about the idea of owning a jetpack and just being able to yes. fly. And it's, 100%. But it's it's one of these things I remember because like Empire used to have a thing that was like, what is the practicality of being able to actually produce these things? And I remember them sort of talking about like Transformers and then going like, you know, we could build a fucking Transformer. It's just that it's actually far more – it would be far more as effective as like a tank or a vehicle than it would be as a walking robot. <laughs> you know, it's like – Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind yeah, of my no. thing is I'm kind of like I'm not really sure what advantage strapping people to a jetpack actually has over just having actual planes. Well, it's a lot cheaper, right? Yeah, but I'm still kind of like I don't know, you could and drop the, bombs, you can do a lot more with a plane than you can with a guy in a jetpack. Well, and not only that, but if you have a plane, you can't have like 70,000 planes, but you can have 70,000 troops with jetpacks. So it's cheaper. And if you have every single one of your soldiers or like a large contingent of them with these jetpacks, then they would one have the, uh, the sort of mobility and the sort of individual with basically flying that, explosives on their back that if you shoot, they'll explode. Yeah. That's a very good point too. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not entirely thought through, which is probably why it never happened <laughs> or at least hasn't happened. Well, yet, I do think, I cause think I do think will. like if we wanted, we probably could develop the technology for jetpacks. I'm just not really sure there's actually a practical necessity to have jetpacks. Yeah. And then I also wonder, I mentioned it in the intro, like why doesn't he burn his legs? Yeah. Like there's no protection. There's no, there's no like diverting the flame. The yeah, flame but didn't they just... say, well, they, they said the whole thing about how it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it was how the jetpack didn't overheat and explode. It had something to do with like double casing and they reverted something to something. But still, there's a fucking flame coming out in it, on his legs. <laughs> it's a, I don't know. We'll wrap it up in a second. But I just I kind of wanted to say, like, what is what's your feelings about uh, Joe Johnson, the director? Well, okay, so he he's done uh, a handful of films. What else has he well, done? Well, he, he was an effects artist, and he was kind of a protege yes. of um, Lucas and Spielberg. Um, yeah, because he was uh, on Star Wars, right? Yeah. He, he was an effects guy. He was on Star Wars, yeah. worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, worked on Willow, uh, was also uh, was also worked on Always with Spielberg. And um, okay. yeah, but then sort of like hit the big time with um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was a Spielberg-produced well, film. One of my favorite movies, again, when I was a little boy. I fucking love Tony Ashraf. And he got, you know, he basically did these kind of like, essentially, I kind of always thought he's like Spielberg with all of the the earnestness and wonder, but none of the brain. So, you know, it's mm. like he does like, so he does like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, The Page Master, Jumanji, mm-hmm. Jurassic oh. Park 3, Hidalgo, and then makes Captain America First Avenger. But... The thing that he made, which is a film that I actually adore and very few people have seen, is a movie called October Sky, starring a young Jake Gyllenhaal uh, as a kid living in a coal mining town, I think in Virginia, who really Mm. wants to become a rocket scientist. He's sort of inspired by seeing Sputnik and, you know, and really wants to build rockets. 
Um, and so mm-hmm. him and his kind of friends, they, they, they're from like this, his, his dad works in the mines. It's kind of from, he's like from a poor sort of shitty background. And the idea is that like, you basically, unless you get an, unless you get a sports scholarship, when you leave high school, you go in straight into the mines. And so, I mean, essentially it's Billy Elliot, but instead of dancing, the kid wants to build rockets. Um, <laughs> And okay. I've never seen it. Uh, Chris Cooper is the dad in it. Laura Dern is kind of the Chris teacher Cooper. that inspires him. And I, I, it is one of those films that is earnest as fuck, but the earnesty is in all the right places. And I just mm. fucking love it. And yeah, like I said, it's got a yeah. young Jake Gyllenhaal in it. It's the first thing I ever saw him in. And it is fucking great. So if you ever get a chance, fucking watch October Sky. It is a beautiful little film. Yeah, well, when you look at his filmography of the films that he's directed, at least... You know, it, it actually. Oh, speaking of Howard the Duck, apparently he was visual effects for the art director for uh, Howard the Duck. But anyway, when you look at the films that he's directed, like none of them are bad, yeah. except for maybe Jurassic Park three. Um, but like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Rocketeer, Page Master, Jumanji, those were all films that I remember as a kid really appealed to me. Yeah, you know, and and I was I was the perfect age for them too because I was born in the early eighties, eighty three. Yeah. So because I was born in that time period, I think you know his filmography is. I don't know. It kind of, kind of, it vibes with me, you know. Yeah, and and I think that's it. I think that that's exactly what it is. It's 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 charming and it has that sense of wonder of kind of Spielberg. But there's always like there's always a slightly deeper level to Spielberg. So E.T. There's this kind of interesting well of melancholy and a sort of dramatic struggle within this kid who's kind of you know within this kid's sort of sense of loneliness and stuff like that. But it, you know, if you're doing like Jumanji, like there is no real emotional weight to anything the kids are going through it's pure spectacle and the kids are it's, right. it's endearing but it's not there's not much depth to it and that's again sure. why it makes so much sense that he directed jurassic park 3 because that is a film that is like it's it doesn't get what made the first jurassic park work i mean i arguably i think none of the sequels get the first get what worked about the first jurassic park even the one spielberg directed so i mean mm. you know my opinion, and it will stay this way forever, is that Jurassic Park mm. should just never, nobody should have ever made any sequels to it. But right. um, I think at the same time, I think I think that's what's kind of fascinating about why I think he was such the right choice for Captain America, the first Avenger, because he does get this kind of, I think Captain America needed to be made by someone who got and understood a certain earnestness to the film. Like mm. it, it couldn't have been made ironically. And the way that they sort of used the whole thing of the patriotism and they just steer into this idea that captain america is this character who is just ridiculously good and moral and right Right. and you're kind of like and they don't try and like give it a cynical edge or anything they're like nope this is just what captain america is and i kind of like i you know i think i think that makes sense because you look at the rocketeer and you're like this is it makes so much sense why he was given that role yeah. And I I, yeah, yeah. I like him. I don't think any of his films are amazing, except I almost think October Sky is amazing. But that's partially, I think, mm. because of my own nostalgia and my own kind of like <laughs> my own willingness to get wrapped up in sappy shit sometimes. But it's certified fresh is what I, you're saying. Yes, certified fresh. But I will genuinely say you should watch October Sky. It's, it's it's lovely. It's really it's really lovely. And again, it kind of feels like one of those Disney emotional, you know, sort of movies, but it's still really good so yeah so cool um yeah i i enjoyed this i'm glad i finally saw it um i don't think again i think it's a film that if you have the nostalgia of having watched it as a child it's going to have more weight than coming to it purely um for the first time at this age but you know i i certainly i enjoyed my time watching it i thought timothy dalton was fucking great and uh, yeah no i, I thought yeah. it was i thought it was worth a see i'm um 
not Sweet. sorry they didn't make any sequels to it because I kind of felt like the concept of it the first time was kind of what was enjoyable. I'm not really sure I wanted to see any sequels to it. Well, I feel like it's time for a reboot. So, uh, Disney, come on. I will not rock it, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow. Now. Keep your eyes open for this dame. Jenny's in trouble. They're working for a Nazi agent. With an army equipped with these, you could rule the world. Cliff! You touch one hair on her head, I swear out. <laughs> We've got the girl. The rocket will come to us. I love her, Peeve. Does she know that? She's gonna find out. Hand over the rockets! The Rocketeer. Go get him, kid. Okay, so that's us all wrapped up on the Rocketeer, and uh, yeah, no, it was. Uh, it, Austin didn't pain me too much this this time. It was nice. Uh, I'm being nice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we've got uh, we've got a guest on next week, uh, a uh, friend of mine called Doug, who's a New York filmmaker, and uh, he brought a kind of interesting one that I actually is a film that I've watched a shitload. Like I was thinking about it, I was like, it's crazy how many fucking times I've seen this film. Um, mm. And that is it's going to be very interesting to hear your perspective on this, I think, given your background. But it is Kevin Smith's 1999 crazy, weird, mm. controversial comedy Dogma, starring Matt mm. Damon and Ben Affleck as two angels trying to find their way back into heaven. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm excited. I'm excited. I actually haven't seen Dogma since I was a fucking teenager. So, yeah, it'll be good. Okay, so uh, look forward to that next week. Um, in um, the meantime, please like and subscribe to us. Uh, hit us up iTunes, uh, write us reviews, email us, uh, get in contact. Yeah, want to hear what you got to say. And uh, yeah, um, yeah. so you can find me at Um You know, my Instagram is BrainPointFlicks. Um, and yeah, Austin. Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. That is Okay, we will see you guys next week for Dogma. Peace.